You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Please turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. How many of you have ever read Shakespeare's play Hamlet? Fair number. Or maybe seen it performed as a play? Watched a movie adaptation? Okay. Plenty of people familiar with Hamlet. Here's the story in brief if you don't already know it. And yes, that's Mel Gibson. Never mind. Anyway. Hamlet was a young man from Denmark who was attending Wittenberg University in Germany. Hamlet's father was king of Denmark, but his death prompts Hamlet to return home for his funeral. Upon Hamlet's arrival, he is shocked to find that his mother is already remarried and that she's married to his father's brother. Worse yet, Hamlet's uncle has had himself declared to be king, even though Hamlet was the rightful successor to the throne. Hamlet begins to suspect foul play. No no dummy here, right? About that time, the ghost of Hamlet's father appears to Hamlet, telling Hamlet that he was indeed murdered and by his own brother, known less, Hamlet's uncle, who is now king and married to his mother. Hamlet's father begs Hamlet to avenge his death, which means he must kill his uncle. Rather than grab the first sword that is handy and run his uncle through, Hamlet questions whether the spirit was truly that of his father, and he decides to fake insanity so people will not perceive his true mission of verifying whether his uncle did, in fact, murder his father. There you go. In his feigned madness, Hamlet has pretended to reject Ophelia, who is the daughter of his uncle's chief advisor, Polonius. That's not Ophelia. That's still Hamlet. Anyway, Hamlet really loves Ophelia, but he's told her off in order to make his act of insanity convincing. Not long afterward, Polonius and Hamlet have a conversation in which Hamlet insults Polonius pretty outrageously, but he's tolerated by Polonius. For one thing, he's still the prince, sort of, but also because of his perception that Hamlet is crazy and because Polonius is trying to find out more about what is wrong with Hamlet. As Polonius prepares to report back to the king, he says this to Hamlet, My honorable lord, I will most humbly take my leave of you. And to this, Hamlet replies, You cannot, sir, take from me anything that I will more willingly part with all except my life. Now, when we read that, it raises a serious question. Why would Hamlet be so willing to give up his life? That's not the usual. Uh, For Polonius, this statement might have been confirmation that Hamlet really is crazy. Certainly, it didn't hurt that perception of insanity that Hamlet was trying to convey. But the reality is that Hamlet is so despondent over his father's death that he wishes he were dead himself. Not only that, But he is experiencing tremendous inner turmoil, wanting to avenge his father's murder, but unable to bring himself to actually kill his uncle. Hamlet is willing to die to escape the guilt and despair that he feels. And that's pretty sad, if you ask me. And you may be wondering, why am I telling you all of this? Because that's usually where we come to at this point. Well, I'm telling you all of this because when Hamlet was so willing to lose his life, it was because he was despondent, overwhelmed by grief that, caused, it was, that was caused by his father's death, 
and despairing over his own lack of courage as he failed to avenge his father's murder. Another way to say it is that Hamlet had lost all hope and that he was failing in the mission given to him by his father. Hamlet wanted to die, in part at least, because he felt like he had lost. When we come to John chapter 19, we see that Jesus was also willing to lose his life, but for very different reasons. Instead of losing hope, Jesus knew that he would secure hope for mankind by his death. And instead of failing in the mission given to him by his father, Jesus knew that when he died, his mission would largely be fulfilled. I mean, almost everything except for one other thing that is going to happen because this has happened. Some of the last words on Jesus, uh, excuse me, some of the last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. These are not words of despair or words of failure. These are words of victory. Jesus endured the cross and everything that led up to it because he was willing to die in order to win. The title of today's message is, It is Finished. And we'll start in John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now in John chapter 19, John mentions four specific fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy, and there are at least three more that he doesn't mention. I mean, he, he mentions the fulfillment, but he doesn't say that it's the fulfillment of, of Scripture. The first of these that he doesn't explicitly mention is in verse 1, as Pilate had Jesus scourged. Isaiah 53, 5 says in part, And by his scourging we are healed. Peter quotes that same verse in 1 Peter 2, 24, referring to Jesus' crucifixion and the events surrounding it, including the actual scourging. 
Luke tells us that it was Pilate's intent to punish Jesus and to release him. And it seems that Pilate hoped that scourging Jesus would appease the Jews and they would stop insisting that Jesus be crucified. And scourging, which probably most of you are somewhat familiar with, this knotted series of ropes or cords or pieces of leather or whatever they were, sometimes embedded with sharp pieces of metal, bone, rock. Scourging could be administered with different degrees of severity, depending on what was trying to be accomplished. But there wasn't any scourging that wasn't horrific. The most severe of these scourgings could end in death. There were cases where they would take then the corpse that was left from the scourging and they would hang that on the cross because uh, they still wanted that symbolism and that message to be delivered. At the very least, the one being scourged would be seriously injured, probably suffering from serious bruising, cuts, and bleeding. And then literally adding insult to injury the soldiers decide to mock the one called the king of the Jews by making a crown for him out of some sort of thorny branches. And they had several to choose from in that country, all pretty nasty. You can be sure that they did not set this crown lightly on Jesus' head, preferring to inflict as much pain as possible on him. And the purple robe that they put on him may be the one that Luke tells us that Herod Antipas placed on Jesus when he was mocking him a little bit earlier. The soldiers also strike Jesus, mocking him further as they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! Matthew and Luke both record that the soldiers who blindfolded Jesus and demanded that... Excuse me. Matthew and Luke both record that the soldiers blindfolded Jesus and they demanded that he prophesy by telling who it was who hit him. Sounds like junior high on the playground, except with really bad things going on. It was in this condition, scourged, having received many blows, with a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe on his back, that Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews again. And it's in a mocking way, I I believe. But his plan to release Jesus fails when the Jews bring up another charge against Jesus. And this is the real reason that they wanted him put to death, or at least one of them, one of the real reasons, that Jesus made himself out to be the Son of God. And that would be a serious charge against Jesus if he were not actually the Son of God. Over and over, John has presented the evidence that proves that Jesus is the Son of God, but the Jews refuse to accept that truth. Now, Pilate is worried, but for a different reason. The Romans believed in many gods, but they also believed that those gods commonly visited earth in human form. Pilate's wife had already warned Pilate not to harm Jesus, because of a dream that she had. And if there was a chance that Jesus was really one of the sons of the gods, then Pilate would want nothing to do with punishing him further. So Pilate asked Jesus a a great question. Where are you from? Now, if you've been a reader of this gospel, for example, when John first published this and it started being circulated, and you were reading this account, maybe not having been there yourself, much like we have not been there and we're reading this account, Based on what John has told us already, we would know the answer to that. Where's Jesus from? Well, he came from God the Father. He was preexistent in eternity past in heaven with God the Father. He and the Father are one. And Jesus has come 
to do the will of the Father. We know all the answers that Pilate doesn't know. But Jesus doesn't answer, probably because Pilate wanted to know for the wrong reasons. He wasn't really interested in finding out the truth about Jesus. He was interested in protecting himself. When Pilate expresses his frustration about Jesus' silence, he declares the authority that he believed that he had over Jesus, either to release him or to crucify him. And this, Jesus chooses to answer. And it's another factor in this willing journey that Jesus is taking that leads him to the cross. Jesus tells Pilate in no uncertain terms that the only reason Pilate has any control over Jesus is because God has given Pilate that control. Jesus is not standing before Pilate against his will. He was there because he had a mission to fulfill. Well, Pilate makes another effort to release Jesus. And then the Jews play the big political card because they were not above that either. They claimed that if Pilate released Jesus, he would be no friend to Caesar because Jesus' claim to be a king was in rebellion against Caesar. Now, this friend of Caesar designation, you know, you could get a, I don't know, like a medal or a button or a, a hat or a T-shirt or something, I don't know, that said, hi, I'm a friend of Caesar. And that was a special deal for people in the Roman Empire. It was a designation that was greatly desired by those I was kidding about the t-shirt, by the way. Uh, it was a, a designation that was greatly desired by those who were in power if they hoped to stay in power. To be a friend of Caesar meant Caesar. you had Caesar's seal of approval and, and you were okay. The Jews essentially claimed that Pilate would be committing political suicide if he released Jesus. Now Pilate tries to turn the tables on them, presenting Jesus to them once again as their king, because that was what they had said Jesus claimed to be, asking them if they wanted him to crucify their king. And this is one of the most, as bad as everything else in this chapter is, this is one of the most disturbing points to me. The response of the Jews here is chilling, as it indicates a complete rejection of God the Father, as well as of his Son. And these are his people. These are the, the, the ones who were designated so long before, descendants of Abraham through Isaac, that were God's chosen people, given the promised land, given the, the prophets, given the word through the prophets, and all the things that God did in relationship with these people as his showcase nation to the world. And they rejected God and flatly stated, we have no king but Caesar. Now that is a statement that no God-fearing Jew could ever make in good conscience. This was true blasphemy. Uh, the, the very charge the Jews brought against Jesus falsely. No verdict is pronounced, but the outcome is clear. All hearings and trials are now over. Jesus has been condemned to be crucified. Let's go on to verse 16. Speaking about Pilate, it says... So he then handed him, that's Jesus, over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished! And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, most commentators that I have read indicate that contrary to what we sometimes see, the upright portion of the cross was left planted in the ground. The condemned person carried the crossbar to the place of crucifixion where he would be attached to it in some way, and then the crossbar with the person so attached would be hoisted up and fastened to the upright. That crossbar could weigh well over 100 pounds. Not everyone who was crucified was nailed to the cross, but from what Thomas says in chapter 20, we can be confident in believing that Jesus was nailed to the cross. Remember Thomas, as we're going to get to in the next chapter, wanted to see the imprints of the nails. John doesn't mention that Jesus was unable to carry the crossbar the entire way, but Mark tells us that a man named Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry the crossbar the rest of the way. And here we find another fulfilled prophecy that John doesn't mention. John tells us that Jesus was crucified along with two other men. Matthew adds the detail that they were robbers. Isaiah 53.9 says that his grave was assigned with wicked men. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see another fulfilled prophecy from that same verse. The sign that Pilate had put on the cross seems to have served as a statement of the charges against him. If that's so, then it would indicate that Pilate decided to condemn Jesus on the charge of rebellion, perhaps hoping to maintain favor with Rome in the process. And the sign was written in three languages. It's called Hebrew here. Uh, everything I'm reading says that a reference to Aramaic, the common spoken language of that country and those people in that time. And then Latin and Greek. Hebrew or Aramaic, whichever one it was, was the language of the Jews. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, and Greek was the language of trade and literature. It's safe to say, I think, that anyone who passed by who could read would have been able to read the sign in at least one language. At Pilate's order, the sign said the king of the Jews, and the Jews, of course, wanted him to change that to say that Jesus only claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. They're not going to get everything they want today. And uh, possibly he refused as a way of showing the Jews that he still had control over their affairs. In verses 23 and 24, we find one of the fulfilled prophecies that Jesus does mention. It was the custom that the soldiers in charge of the condemned were entitled to any clothing or possessions belonging to the prisoner. Because they're not going to need it anymore, obviously. At least that's what they thought. Whatever else Jesus wore 
could be divided four ways, but his inner tunic was special, woven all as one piece, and the soldiers were unwilling to cut it up. I'm reminded of the garment of the priest that served in the tabernacle, whose tunic was woven out of one piece with an opening for the head and, and the way that that was designed. But I don't know that there's a special connection there. I'm just reminded of it. The soldiers didn't want to cut it up, so they cast lots to see who would get this special garment. Perhaps they rolled dice or drew straws, something similar. And this fulfilled what was written in Psalm 22:18, where it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Very specific. And you think if those Romans knew what they were doing, they might not have done it. Fulfilling prophecy about the Jewish Messiah that way. There will be more prophecies from Psalm 22, and are more prophecies from Psalm 22 that, uh, that uh, happened there. Don't lose sight of the backdrop of this activity, though. There the soldiers are, gambling for Jesus' clothing, while Jesus and two other men are dying slow, agonizing deaths right there, practically right above their heads, probably. In sharp contrast, though, Jesus has family and friends there with at least one of his 12 disciples attending the crucifixion. Jesus' mother, one of her sisters are there, along with two other women named Mary, a lot of Marys here, and also John, the writer of this gospel, I believe, is the disciple that is mentioned. Even at that moment of extreme agony, Jesus was concerned about the welfare of his mother, and he entrusted her to John's care. Now you'd think, well, you know, Jesus saw this coming. He knew this was going to happen. Why didn't he take care of this ahead of time? I think that uh, this was the moment if Jesus had gone to John and said, you know, John, I'm going to be on the cross and not really going to feel like talking at that point, so I want you to take care of my mom. Not real. This is very real. And to think that Jesus took that time under those conditions to care for his mother. Well, it says a lot to me about the kind of son that Jesus was. Verses 28 and 29 are a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. That, that verse says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This sour wine that they offered to Jesus was uh, a form of vinegar. After that, Jesus speaks his final words from the cross as recorded by John. All in all, if you combine the Gospels together, there are seven different things said by Jesus while he was on the cross. None of the Gospels have all seven. It's a little difficult to me to tell exactly what order they came in. Most uh, commentators, I think, believe that his final words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, as recorded by Luke. I think it could be possible that they were the words that John records here in verse 30, it is finished. Now in Greek, that, that phrase that takes, you know, in English, it is finished, the clause actually. Uh, this is a single word in Greek. It's actually used twice in these verses. Once in verse 28, where the statement is made, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. The had been accomplished part of that, verse 28, is identical in Greek to the statement here that Jesus makes, it is finished, in verse 30. At this point, Jesus had been on the cross for about six hours. During that time, he has taken the penalty for the sins 
of all mankind on himself, putting him in the most difficult circumstances he would ever experience, and prompting him to cry out, as recorded by one of the other gospel writers, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote from Psalm 22. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes what happened like this. He, that is speaking about God, the Father, made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And at that point, oh yes, we still have to get past the resurrection, but that's going to happen. Because at this point, Jesus had done what he came to do. Mission accomplished. The victory has been won. And then Jesus died. And I say that, and I know, you know we're used to thinking about that, but that's a big deal. There's still people that deny that. He really died. He didn't faint for a while. He didn't lapse into a coma for a few days. He died. But look at how he died. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In other words, he died when he was ready to die. He died when he chose to die. Back in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Jesus speaking. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus was willing to die because it fulfilled the mission given to him by God the Father. When everything else had been done that needed to be done, Jesus laid down his life on his own initiative. It is finished. Let's go to verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Well, in another fit of irony, the Jews who had just become full-blown accomplices and conspirators to the murder of Jesus were now concerned that the bodies not remain on the crosses when the approaching Sabbath begins. That would be bad, right? Murder's okay, but defiling the Sabbath is not. Okay. For the Romans, this means making sure that the ones who are being crucified are completely dead before their bodies can be taken down. Now, crucifixion... If you can describe it this way, and I, I guess I probably shouldn't, but for what it was meant to do, actually, a, a pretty ingenious method of torture and execution combined. I mean, whoever thought this up was a particular evil genius, all right? Once a person was nailed to the cross, 
the only way to breathe, was to straighten the legs out, raising the upper body and freeing the diaphragm so breathing could happen. Once the strength in the legs gave out, or when it became too painful to push up against the nail that was through the feet, the person would hang down from the nails or ropes attaching the arms to the crossbar, but this would restrict the person's ability to breathe. When the need for a breath became unbearable, the person would once again push upward, again on that nail. Depending on how the person was fastened to the cross, how weak or injured the person was already, and how much strength and stamina a person possessed, this could go on for days. On days like this one, when death was required sooner for whatever reason, the soldiers could break the legs of the person on the cross, preventing him from pushing upward to take a breath. Death by suffocation would follow shortly. But Jesus had already died. The soldiers saw that. They didn't have to break his legs, but they wanted to be absolutely sure that he didn't just appear to be dead. So one of the soldiers thrust the spear into Jesus' side, causing the blood and water to come out. Now, some have said that this means that Jesus' heart was literally broken, ruptured, the actual heart muscle itself, which may or may not be. But to me, it seems to distract us from the important parts of the story. Jesus died. He was completely dead. And, perhaps most importantly, he died at the time of his own choosing. And Jesus tells us two more important, or excuse me, John tells us two more important things about these post-mortem events of Jesus' crucifixion. Psalm 34.10 predicted that the Messiah would not have any broken bones. Remember, if Jesus had not already been dead, his legs would have been broken by the soldiers. That prophecy would have gone unfulfilled. It couldn't happen. Also, Zechariah 12.10 says, in part, that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, the soldiers weren't doing any weeping, but I read that part because it talks about the only son and the firstborn, and, and that we see Jesus in those roles. John clearly states that he himself was there. He himself saw these things, and he himself testifies that they are absolutely true. Go to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, all four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea as being the one who approached Pilate about taking care of Jesus' body. Here we see Nicodemus mentioned also, this Nicodemus who had approached Jesus by night back in John chapter 3, who had defended Jesus back in John chapter 7. Both of these men appear to be uh, quite wealthy. Joseph, we get that idea because tells us in the other Gospels, it was his tomb in which they put Jesus. Not everyone could afford a tomb like that. 
And Nicodemus uh, appears to be wealthy. This 100 pounds, uh, probably 12-ounce pounds, so you do the conversion and you can wind up with 75 of our pounds, still a lot of myrrh and aloes. The, uh, Nicodemus was able to come up with all these burial spices and on short notice. I mean, how much time did they really have to prepare? And Nicodemus had that resource available to him. But whatever the case... And elsewhere, we're also told that, uh, and we know Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Well, we're, we find out that Joseph of Arimathea was also. These two members of the Sanhedrin stepped up to take care of Jesus' body when no one else did. No one else was going to do it. And there, in Joseph's garden tomb, we find our last fulfilled prophecy of this chapter. Again, from Isaiah 53, 9, it says, Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Jesus put, or excuse me, Joseph put Jesus' body into the tomb that he had prepared for his own eventual use. It belonged to him. Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body with cloths and burial spices. They laid him in Joseph's tomb. And then they put the very large stone in front of the tomb's opening. At that point, it would not be easy for anyone or almost anyone, to get in or out of that tomb. When Jesus declared, it is finished, it was more than just a personal milestone that he had reached. It was more than a declaration that he was ready to die. There was more to it than what we might think of as the ending of a chapter in a book. Jesus had accomplished the work that he came to accomplish at least in part, specifically, we could say, having become a human being, he had lived a perfect, sinless life as an example to all who might follow him. He had communicated the truth of God's word faithfully and completely giving information on how to live our earthly lives, how to prepare for heavenly life, and how to have a relationship with God the Father. He had submitted to God the Father he had submitted to God the Father's will in all that he said and did. He performed miracles that substantiated every claim he ever made, including that of being the Son of God. And finally, he willingly laid down his life, allowing himself to be illegally arrested, illegally tried, subjected to abuse and humiliation, scourged, and finally crucified. And there on the cross... There on the cross, he stood in my place and yours, bearing the penalty for the sins of the world. But again, when I say something like that, I can't leave it there. The sins of the world, that sounds so remote. People out there somewhere, vaguely, no, faceless people, no. No, he took upon himself the penalty for your sin, for my sin, to the point that God's justice was satisfied. And the opportunity for salvation and eternal life was secured for all who would truly put their faith in Jesus and faithfully follow him. Now, it is true, mentioned before, Jesus still had to rise from the dead. But with the words, it is finished, Jesus declared that all that ever needed to be done either had already been done or it was as good as done. The resurrection would take place establishing the pattern for our resurrection as well, which we'll talk about next week.
in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Hamlet does eventually avenge his father's murder by killing his uncle, but not until six other people die or are mortally wounded first. Finally, Hamlet himself dies, having been wounded by the very same poisoned sword he uses to kill his uncle. It's not a cheery story. I've often said that the plot summary of Hamlet is everybody dies. That seems like how it ends. From one perspective, that could be said to be the plot summary of our human lives as well. Everybody dies. And then what? Well, if you're in Christ, forgiven of your sin, having the Holy Spirit living in you, then your death is only temporary. When Christ returns, you will rise from the dead and he will take you to heaven to be with him forever. But if you're not in Christ then your death is just the introduction to an eternity of suffering and torment separated forever from God and Christ. But because Jesus willingly, I want to say that again, Jesus willingly laid down his life and did everyone or did everything that anyone could ever need for salvation, you can reap the benefit of his declaration from the cross that it is finished. Jesus has secured eternal life for you. And it's yours, if you will accept it on his terms. To believe in him, that he died and rose from the dead, the Son of God, as man. To repent of your sin, exchanging your way of living for his way. To confess your faith in Christ, to others and to be baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sin, at which point you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you can live that new life that leads to eternity in heaven. If you're ready to receive the eternal life that Jesus has gained for you by his own willing, sacrificial death, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.